And so to this day, what we're seeing over the last two and a half years of this pandemic, I've been following the trail and expanding my investigation to understanding how does COVID damage our blood vessels beyond the airways. Welcome to the Good Clean Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Purdy, integrative dietitian and nutrition educator. Joining us today is Dr. William Lee, an internationally renowned internal medicine specialist and scientist and author of the New York Times bestseller, Eat to Beat Disease, The New Science of How Your Body Can Heal Itself. His groundbreaking work has led to the development of more than 30 new medical treatments and has influenced treatment and care guidelines for 70 diseases, including cancer, diabetes, blindness, heart disease, and obesity. Since the COVID-19 pandemic, Dr. Lee has been leading research to better understand COVID-19 as a disease and how diet and nutrition can potentially assist in treatment and prevention, which we will be talking about in this episode. Welcome, Dr. Lee. I'm really excited about this topic because I actually know folks who are struggling uh, both currently with COVID and also with long-term COVID. So this is going to be a fantastically informative discussion. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. There's a lot to say, even though this has been such a short time that we've actually been having COVID in everyone's lives, and yet we... We know a lot, and yet we don't know a lot. So I think we can kind of touch on both areas. Absolutely. And and you're known, thank you, for touting the importance of diet for overall longevity and as well as for fighting disease. And as an integrative dietitian, I have to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being a doctor who actually takes on nutrition as as an element of therapeutic uh, interventions. And I'm curious how you became interested in nutrition as a key component of preventing and treating illnesses. Yeah, well, you know, my background in this is as an internal medicine doctor, which means that I take care of young and old, men and women, healthy and sick. My own personal orientation has always been to keep people as healthy as possible. But over the people's journey, the journey of a patient, they're at times going to get sick. And so my goal has always been, even if I need to give them medications or to send them to referrals, I always wanted to get them back on the horse or back on the wagon, so to speak, back to health. And so how do you give somebody back to health in addition to prescriptions, which can last forever? Really, one of the goals is to really help to allow people's bodies to do the work that's necessary to regain, restore, and maintain health. Yes. And if you're going to talk about prevention, you can't talk about drugs or treatments. You got to really talk about something like food, safe, accessible, inexpensive, but the question that I always had about food, which I know, you know, you as a nutritionist, naturally, this is sort of your wheelhouse from the beginning. But for me, as a medical doctor trained more traditionally, I realized that the common criticism is that food diets don't have as much evidence as drugs. Well, I realized that because I was involved with drug development and I helped to develop many of the systems in which drugs are tested, I thought, well, you know, if that's the problem, why don't we develop the evidence? And so I actually started to throw foods into the same systems that drugs are developed to be able to get that evidence. And so for me, I'm, I'm a bona fide food as medicine researcher and actually using the systems to develop the evidence. And that's really how I became interested in this because every single one of my patients would ask me after a visit, and especially after I gave them a serious diagnosis, I'm sorry, Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so, this is what you have. They'd always ask, how bad is it? How long do I have? What's the treatment? They put their coat on and they walk up my office and then they would pop their head back and they'd say, hey, one more thing, doc. 
what should I be eating? And I realized I was never taught that answer. And so I thought that was wrong. And I went back to try to figure out that. And that's really how I got into nutrition. It is so empowering, I think, for patients to understand that it isn't just about the diagnosis, it's about their participation and sense of empowerment about what they can be doing to create that foundation of health. And you mentioned, you know, health is not the absence of disease. It's a positive vitality that we very often get from uh, the nutritional status that we have. So thank you for that food as medicine approach to, to health and healing. You've said specifically that there are nutrients that can actually starve disease and there are nutrients that can perhaps feed disease. So talk a little bit about the mechanisms of action behind those two statements. From my work in biotechnology, I realized that there was so much work being done on the immune system, on the vascular system, on gene therapy, on regenerative therapy. And I worked in all of these areas. And then I realized the microbiome was this other powerful area that was just starting to emerge. And I realized that rather than thinking about the treatments to cure disease by striking at the immune system or the vascular system, what if we looked at the negative space? What if we looked at the controls, the placebos, the people who are not actually getting the drug? How do they actually stay healthy? So when people talk about nutrition and talk about superfoods, what I actually always say is that my research has revealed hundreds of different foods that are helpful for health. And there is no one single superfood, but what is super is actually the human body. When it comes to food and health, it's not just about the food, it's about how our body responds to what we put inside it. And that is where the health defense systems comes in. When we feed our health defenses as we get older, we can actually raise our shields, our health defenses, or we can lower them. So those decisions that we make three times a day actually guide our destiny. Mm. Powerful. And so eating is actually helping to feed these defense systems, the blood vessels, the stem cells, the microbiome, the DNA, the immune system, which we might even say is is intricately involved with all of those other systems. These systems, by the way, are like a macrame. They're they're interwoven together. If you you took a look at like an Irish fisherman's sweater and Mm -hmm. looked at all the yarn that's sewn together, that is actually how our health defenses are. And so literally, you know, that old saying about the hip bone connected to the leg bone, Our health defenses are all interwoven together. It's really quite amazing what they do. So foods that help one system tend to help other systems as well. And I I really like to challenge that notion of just food as medicine, because is it the food that's the medicine or is the food that's providing the tools and the information that our body needs to do the healing on its own? And the food provides those tools with which those defense systems that you talk about can operate more functionally. That's a great point. Listen, I... When I wrote my book, Eat to Beat Disease, and I got a copy of it right here, it, it's got a big, you know, nice letter on it, Eat to Beat Disease, but actually the real title, the essence is what's the subtitle, which says the new science of how the body can heal itself. And to me, that is the most important thing. And if there's any take home, even from this discussion that we're having today, but everything that I do is that we actually have within us the power to maintain our health, to restore our health, and to avert disease. And what we do in terms of decisions that we make for food that we put into our body, either raise our shields or take them down. And so it's really, we have that agency to be able to do that. That cannot be the missing tool in the toolbox for healthcare, because in fact, it is the care for our health that happens between visits to the doctor's office. 
Amen to that. And I want to get to the heart of our conversation today because you mentioned angiogenesis, right? And you are the founder and the president of the Angiogenesis Foundation, and you have been leading research there to better understand COVID-19, its short-term impacts, its long-term impacts. And I would love to understand more. What is the Angiogenesis Foundation and how does that connect to the research that you are doing around COVID-19? Well, look, my background in vascular biology studies blood vessels. I was really fortunate early in my career to train with the the father of angiogenesis research uh, at Harvard. And I was so inspired by that work where he was looking at cancers forming all the time in the body without causing disease, like pimples that actually Hmm. form in our body, because Hmm. cancers form with DNA mutations. And I don't know if you know this or not, Mary, but Can you guess how many mutations happen in the average person's body every day? Uh, 400. 10,000 DNA mistakes happen every day simply because we, you and I are made of 40 trillion cells a piece. And when those cells have to copy paste themselves to divide every day, if I gave you 10 words to copy paste, you probably wouldn't make a mistake. If I gave you a hundred, probably be pretty good. If I give you 40 trillion, you definitely make mistakes. And our body makes 10,000 mistakes. Now, why don't we form cancers all the time? Well, the answer is we actually do, but the, our DNA fixes most of it on all these right. other health defenses, do their job to protect us from dangers inside our body as well. So anyway, angiogenesis is one of those because the growth of blood vessels, we all have 60,000 miles worth of blood vessels packed inside our bodies under our skin, right? And these are the highways and byways of the oxygen we breathe and the nutrients that we swallow. And so our blood vessels deliver oxygen and nutrients to every single cell and every single organ in our body. And that's what we want the defense system to do is to keep everything well-fed and happy. We don't want to have insufficiencies. So imagine you are a landscaper and there was a bald patch on your golf course, you better actually put some grass seed under to grow up the grass or you're gonna actually have a problem. The other side is that if you have too much overgrowth in one area, you gotta mow it down. You want the perfect lawn and that's what the angiogenesis system does. And that's what my organization actually does is we actually study angiogenesis as a common denominator of both health and disease. And when it comes to cancer, what cancers do and become dangerous, these little microscopic cancers can only grow to about two to three millimeters in diameter. That's the size of the tip of a ballpoint pen. Can't get any bigger, no oxygen, no nutrients. That's how big they are because our body's defenses prevents blood Mm. vessels from feeding them. And then our immune system wings by, like I say, cops on a beat to pick up these errant bad guys that they see and take them away. And that's really why when people say, well, why did I get cancer? Why did I get colon cancer or breast cancer or uh, skin cancer? This is how my brain works. Let's ask a different question. Why don't we get cancer more often? Mm. And the Mm. answer is that our body's health defenses protect us against that. And this kind of knowledge about our body's health defenses, especially angiogenesis is what brought me to COVID research. And so maybe that's a good place to start. Yeah. And let's relate that because I'm hearing that these blood vessels are are, are acting as a supportive highway for the defense systems. How is this relating to COVID-19, either one's susceptibility to it or one's poor outcome from it or the severity of the disease? Talk to us about that. When we looked in this tissue of people who died of COVID immediately, I mean, I would say within days, we realized this was not just a respiratory disease 
It wasn't just a bronchitis, a bad bronchitis. It wasn't just a bad flu. We saw at the get-go that we saw for the first time the coronavirus, the thing with the spikes, invading the blood vessels mm. in the lung. We have the first pictures of invading the blood vessels, damaging the blood vessels. Okay, now we had the tools of modern technology but that people didn't have during the plague. So we got to the genomics, like we went right down to the gene, from the tissue to the gene, from the autopsy down to the tissue, down to the blood vessels, down to the genetic level. And man, were we, were we shocked. The coronavirus entered the blood vessel, screwed up the blood vessel, destroyed the architecture of the lining of the circulation completely, and basically started to race like a wildfire. Uh, right through the circulation. So everywhere we saw, it was in the brain. It was happening in a thyroid. It was happening in the testicles. It was actually happening in the heart. And we were able to do this technique called corrosion casting, where you can inject a uh, resin into the small blood vessels, and then you dissolve away all the tissue. And we were able to actually get these three-dimensional sculptural pictures of what was going on in addition to having the genetic information. So we actually published our findings as a lead story in the New England Journal of Medicine. It helped to explain all these odd phenomenon that we saw at the very beginning of the pandemic, mm-hmm. blood clots, strokes, COVID toe, kidney failure, things that you don't normally see with a viral infection. What was happening was that the blood vessels are being damaged. And because these are the highways and byways that you need oxygen and nutrients to, when you damage the blood vessels, you get clots. When you get clots, you interrupt blood flow, and now you have organ damage. And so to this day, what we're seeing over the last two and a half years of this pandemic, I've been following the trail and expanding my investigation to understanding how does COVID damage our blood vessels beyond the airways? How does it develop our small sense of how does it develop our brain? COVID will shrink your brain, which is really astounding. It can actually do this. We've actually found that, and this has been published, blood vessels infected by the coronavirus will in people who are severely affected. Now, remember, many people have brain fog. We found this in the autopsy. Literally, the coronavirus invades the blood vessels of the brain and strips out the lining. It's like pulling the foot out of a sock. The vessels collapse no blood flow. And this is happening at the microscopic level. This is hidden in plain sight. So now we're using computer programs and software to reconstruct the blood vessels in different organs, starting with the lungs. And we can literally calculate where and how much and how badly the blood vessels are damaged. So it's true that the ancestral, the first coronavirus did the worst damage. But I will tell you, we have not published it yet, but we're going to very soon we're finding a similar kind of thing also happens with Omicron. I'm one of the people that actually, because I'm in the trenches looking at this stuff, I'm not quite ready to call it over. In fact, what I would say is that now's the time to take stock of everything we've learned and think about what are some sensible things that we can do forward, because actually we know more now than we did before. Wow. Okay. So that was a cascade of information. I want to make sure that I've got, I want to summarize again for our listeners and for myself, for my own brain. 
So we have this defense system, one of which is these blood vessels. The coronavirus actually invades these blood vessels. They cause things like clots. These things can lead to organ damage. It really depends on perhaps where the weakest link is of the person who has that coronavirus uh, in terms of where it actually manifests, brain, heart, testicles, wherever that may be. And that may have short-term and or long-term effects. And I want to bring this back to the nutrition piece, because mm-hmm. I know that there are foods that strengthen our blood vessels, like you know phytochemicals, uh, polyphenols. So let's talk a little bit about what is it that nutrition and food, what is it that that, that can do to help prevent COVID and uh, perhaps prevent a worse outcome or a more severe case of it? Talk to right. us about that. Well, this is actually you know like a great opportunity to reintroduce this idea of health. It's not so much why did I get COVID why didn't I get COVID is because your body's health defenses were basically, you know, your musketeers defending yourself, pulling out the scabbard and actually defending yourself against things, invaders from the outside, in this case, the coronavirus. So what are the, what are the health defense systems? Immune system is the first one. All right. We need to be able to repel the bacteria and viruses, not just COVID, but lots of viruses that are running around there. If you have an invasion, you need to be able to lower inflammation because although inflammation is a natural response to an infection, a little bit is good. A lot of it is terrible. A little bit is, I tell people like this, think about going camping in the woods. You want to create a nice campfire. You can cook your meal in the evening before you retire into the tent. Little campfire is good. And then you want to put it out, right? So you just dump some water in it, put it out. Now you can rest at night. But imagine, and that's inflammation. Like now imagine if the inflammation doesn't go out. And in fact, it jumps out of the fire pit and now it ignites the forest on fire. Now it's a life-threatening critical situation. And that's one of the things that COVID does as well. And so you want your health defenses to be able to lower inflammation. And foods can not only raise immunity, foods like broccoli sprouts and blueberries have been known to increase your T cells and natural killer cells. That's the front line of defense. And foods that can lower inflammation, okay, and we can go through these like critical step by critical step, foods that lower inflammation are, many of them are vitamin C containing foods. So you're talking about strawberries, guava, red bell pepper, tomatoes, all at green tea is another one with catechins that can Mm -hmm. actually lower inflammation. None of these things are pharmaceutical panaceas, but they are all parts of the equation. Those things, those self-care Healthcare is self-care. And so those are things that we could do for ourselves. And what back to the staring out the window at the beginning of the pandemic, what I realized was that here I am, I'm a pretty fluent in biotechnology. And my job is actually to develop like really cutting edge treatments for, you know, like really unstoppable diseases like blindness. And all of a sudden I was stopped dead in my tracks with nothing, no pharmaceuticals. And this was a lesson to me where physicians who have relied on pharmaceuticals as their real weapon of choice suddenly had nothing to offer patients. And without knowledge about nutrition, there was no dialogue to be had. So everybody just clammed up and went to work in the ICUs and emergency rooms. And yet I felt like there was an absolute need to be able to communicate to the public. And so when everybody started to go on Zoom, I started to do these masterclasses and I started to develop online courses in order to be able to teach people, look, you got these health defense systems. This is your chance because you have to make a decision to eat three times a day to be able to arm your body while you're healthy 
in order to be able to actually be as in control of your health and defend against disease as best you can. And so even after you get infected, there's still ways to actually deal with uh, COVID and post-COVID, they call the so-called long COVID, there's a repair that needs to happen as well. And I'm working on that as also. Mm. So, I mean, it is really astonishing to me that for so long, we haven't been having conversations like this in the media or in general in the medical community about how key it is to just make sure that the immune system is bolstered and balanced and ready. And so many people who have had COVID may have had these insufficiencies of these vitamins and minerals that support the immune system. And I think people don't recognize that the immune system is driven and supported by nutrition and nutrients. So this idea of these vitamin C rich foods you mentioned, and I know these polyphenols, things like catechins and anthocyanins and blueberries, and then, of course, we we look at our vitamin D levels. We look at vitamin A levels that all support immune function. And, and obviously, we know that a good chunk of our immunity is in the gut microbiome, which you mentioned as a uh, an important defense system. So talk about the role of the microbiome. So the gut microbiome is another one of the body self-defenses. We talked a little bit about angiogenesis. I want to circle back to that. The immune system, obviously, frontline of defense, very important in acute disease. The gut microbiome is, an, is a, one of the, the third health defense system is fascinating because while we don't think about bacteria in our body, and I want to just come back to how when I was in medical school, microbiology class was all about memorizing, learning and memorizing about bacteria that you that were bad and that you wanted to kill, must kill bacteria. And then we did pharmacology and here is the drug to kill the bad bacteria. And we just like filled our heads with all this stuff. Little did we know and this is now fast forward today, that in fact, most of the bacteria that we encounter in our lives are good bacteria. Most of the bacteria in the human body, on the human body that we encounter are good bacteria. And there's a few bacteria that occasionally occur when your immune system's out of whack, when your microbiome's out of whack, they can overgrow, right? So here we are like prescribing antibiotics to kill specific organisms. Now, Granted, that can be life-saving. So I, I'm one of those doctors who believes the right medicine for the right person at the right time. But think about the idea of collateral damage. Here we are trying to kill one organism that we've identified, and we are knocking out all these other organisms that's called dysbiosis. Now, if you think about the number of people that are on antibiotics for bronchitis or skin lesions or pneumonia or UTIs, urinary tract infections, a boil, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, dental uh, procedures. Now think about the impact on the gut microbiome. Now the gut microbiome mostly lives in the lower part of our gut. Okay. In the intestines, in the area, of the colon, the colon is the big fat tube at the very end of our digestive system. And the area that most of the microbiome, the gut bacteria live in is called the cecum. Okay. It's at the front end of the colon. The tail end is basically where we squeeze it out. The, but the front end of the colon is actually where most of the bacteria is. Most people don't realize this, but again, a change of teaching when I went to medical school is that we now know that 70% of your immune system is actually in the wall of your gut. So think about a garden hose in the summer and you cut that garden hose in half and you see a hose with a hole in it, a channel, Inside that hole is where the bacteria are going to live in the cecum, in their gut. That's the gut bacteria. And in the lining of the hose, in the wall of the hose that you just cut open, that's where 70% of your immune system actually is. So your gut bacteria talks to your immune system. When your gut bacteria are healthy, 
they are able to instruct the immune system to do the right thing. I call it like college roommates screaming through a paper thin wall in their dorm to talk about what they should order at the pizza, what, what they want in their pizza. It's basically your bacteria talking to your immune system continuously. And when you actually upset the bacteria, the instructions to the immune system are disrupted and your immune system doesn't do as good. So now think about this, right? Who gets COVID? Who doesn't get COVID? We don't know yet exactly, but we do believe that the gut microbiome, the makeup of the gut microbiome impacts your immune system, impacts your defenses, and might actually lower your shields so that a virus that might not attack or invade your neighbor, your family member, your coworker, might actually get you because your gut microbiome was a little bit up. How do you know when your gut microbiome is off? Well, okay, so we can do kind of poop tests and scrape and send away and get a result back. But I think that we have an easier way to tell, right? I mean, all of us have had like felt crappy in our tummies from the time we were kids. That's a cardinal sign. That's kind of like, listen to your body. There's something that's not quite right. Something's out of balance there. And that's the time that you should really use nutrition as your friend to be able to actually get that gut microbiome to be happier, feed it dietary fiber, prebiotic foods, probiotic foods like fermented foods, and even postbiotic foods, which contain the stuff that the bacteria also make to calm and quell and get the bacteria, the ecosystem to be happy, which makes a happy immune system. So very much intertwined. And by the way, one interesting study that came out of China in the early days, they looked at 700 people in China as the pandemic was just starting, and they wanted to figure out who is gonna wind up getting COVID and who's not gonna wind up getting COVID. So by tracking people, they did blood tests, they did poop tests, they also did dietary surveys to figure out what people were eating and drinking. They found that the people who wound up not getting COVID, who had a stronger immune response, they had a cytokine, a good cytokine, an antivirus cytokine called interferon gamma that was high in their bloodstream. Now, then they said, well, okay, well, who are the people that have high interferon gamma? That's where the answer came from the poop. They looked at the microbiome and the people who had high interferon gamma had high levels of a bacteria called ruminococcus, mm. all right? It's just one of many bacteria. Then they basically said, well, now who has ruminococcus? That's where the dietary surveys delivered an answer. And they found that the people who had the high ruminococcus were the people that ate a diet rich in omega-3 fatty acids mm -hmm. and were drinking green or black tea. All right, mm -hmm. now you talk about a dietary intervention. There you go. A dietary intervention that affects the microbiome that affects the immune system, that affects a clinical outcome. So this is one of those kind of, I'm just, I just shared with you a little bit of the detective story of COVID and nutrition. Well, it makes complete sense to me. I mean, if we think about nutrition being the foundation of immunity, immunity being the foundation of that healthy vitality, it, it, the connection is, is absolutely 
a no brainer. And so again, to capture what you just said, we're talking about that nutritional status of somebody that not only supports their immunity, but also supports the microbiome. So having foods in there that are fiber rich, uh, fermented foods, foods like omega-3 fatty acids, supporting the presence of uh, ruminococcus bacteria that may help to increase levels of this interferon gamma, which is a new uh, cytokine that I have not heard of before. So I'm very excited to always learn, always happy to learn about an inflammatory or uninflammatory uh, cytokine. And so this is really key information for people to know, because I think the studies that I have seen have showcased that those who have a, a worse outcome of COVID-19 have tended to have lower levels of vitamins A's and vitamin D's. And so I want to move us into the conversation around beyond food, which of course we know is foundational, but what about supplementation? Is there a space in this conversation for supplements, whether that's vitamin D or moving beyond that, things like quercetin and acetylcysteine, which I've seen research around. Tell us about your thoughts around those. Yeah. Well, so again, there's a lot we don't know yet. And so the research is still going on. I'll tell you my own views on supplements, which is that Supplements can be life-saving. Most of the vitamins that we have today as supplements really came from addressing serious illnesses like beriberi, rickets, scurvy, right? So those right. are all deficiencies of vitamins. So what does a supplement do? Supplement, by definition, is a top-off. So I think about it like if you can get most of the micronutrients you need from food, do it. Because why? Food is actually also about pleasure. Food gives you joy. I never heard anybody say that medicines or supplements give me joy, but foods give you joy. And that's also an important component, I think, to a healthy life is really to be able to align pleasure and joyfulness with your food. So much about food and health historically has been about deprivation, accusation, blame game, don't do this. Don't eat that. You're a bad person if you do this. I mean, think about just like weight gain. There's a whole stigma around food. My research is really about how do we use food as our friend? How do we use the delicious foods as our friend? And many of those clues, and I'm writing my next book about this, by the way, actually come from old food cultures in the Mediterranean and in Asia, where yeah. time has tested these ingredients for tens of thousands of years. So I believe in supplements. For example, many people in the Northern hemisphere are vitamin D deficient, just not enough sunshine and too much clothing. It's hard to get enough vitamin D just by being outside. In that case, if your vitamin D levels are low, I think supplementation is perfectly fine and probably a really smart thing to do. We do know that people who are more vulnerable to COVID infection and bad outcomes had lower levels of vitamin D. Now we don't know if vitamin D is a treatment it could be that just chronically low vitamin D made your defense systems more vulnerable. So then the virus just drove the truck right through the garage door. And so that's one thing. Omega-3s, first of all, most people don't realize is omega-3s actually come from plants. It doesn't matter where you're talking about a, a walnut or whether you're talking about a, a piece of salmon, because even in the ocean, it's algae and plankton that actually developed the omega-3. So that's like a plant of the sea, right? Mm -hmm. So the thing is that not everybody eats enough seafood. So the USDA recommends two times a week of seafood, about uh, six ounces, about the size of a deck of cards or a couple of decks of cards. It's hard to eat that much fish if you don't live by the shore. And not everybody likes the taste of fish, especially in America. So here's a great example where omega-3s, which are not only useful against infection, okay, but also powerfully 
impactful against cardiovascular disease, protective against heart disease and stroke, protective against dementia, protective against metabolic syndrome, protective against diabetes. There's so many things that the omega-3s are that I almost think that because our body doesn't make omega-3s, that's almost like an essential, I even kind of hesitate in calling it a supplement because it's almost one of those factors like a biological factor that really helps us be healthier. We should be all, we should all be getting omega-3s and it doesn't matter how you get it. If you get it by fish, perfect seafood. And the other thing about mythology, like I'm big about like myth busting. People always think that, well, I got to eat my salmon. I don't like salmon. I've had salmon five times this month. I don't want it anymore. Or tuna. Oh, it's got mercury in it. People don't realize that you can get omega-3s from all kinds of fish, sea bass, cod, flounder, Hey, you can get it from shellfish, clams. You can get some from crab. You can get from some lobster. The key is to actually have little bits all the time. And then if you test your omega-3 levels, if you choose to do that, you can always top it off with a supplement. Great advice. And I'm a big fan of expanding on the seafood world as well. So anchovies and sardines are other great ones too. And they also are more accessible and inexpensive for those who may not be able to afford a nice big chunk of salmon. So one last question we before we are beginning to wrap up here is if somebody does have COVID, I am curious what advice you might give them, either if they are in the throes of it, they just got diagnosed or starting to feel symptoms, what might be helpful for somebody to think about as it relates to foods that they should include? And the same question might go for someone who's struggling with long COVID. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I'm in the middle of this every day right now. You know, I've probably treated more than 250 people with COVID just since January and this being June. So this is really an ongoing activity for me. Let me try to not separate food from medicine, but to really take a more comprehensive approach. And with a caveat that I'm not giving medical advice. I mean, everyone, anyone who's got a medical issue should obviously consult their own doctor. But as a general principle, I think that here's what I would say in where we are at this point in uh, the pandemic. Number one, you should be vaccinated and boosted. Number two, if you get COVID, and you should wear a mask if you can, based on your circumstances. If you get COVID right now, and, and not many, not as many people know this as they should, we have an antiviral treatment that's specific for COVID. This is the z for COVID. This is the game changer that everybody's been waiting for. We didn't have it for two and a half years, and it's not being used often enough, but it's called Paxlovid. It's three pills you take twice a day for five days. It's part of it is derived from an old HIV medicine. So it's been taken for 25 years, very safely. It What it does is it chops down the virus's ability to be able to divide in your body, giving your immune system a chance to wipe it out. Okay. So think about it. Think about the virus, like a piece of chalk on a chalkboard scribbling, putting more chalk on it. Now think about your immune system being the eraser, trying to erase it. The virus is putting more chalk on the board, your eraser, your immune system trying to erase it. Paxlovid prevents more chalk from being put on the board so that your immune system can erase, all right? Now, here's something really interesting that people should know. During this time, you want to actually give your immune system every chance it can, strengthen that immune system. A vitamin D supplement, is there a good thing to take? Vitamin C is anti-inflammatory. Eating foods that actually can uh, lower inflammation. 
really, really important. There may be medications that every individual's doctors may also suggest based on their own circumstance and their own comorbidities. Now, I will tell you the other thing I've learned at the much deeper level, whether you have a severe case of COVID, even during the Omicron era, or whether you have a mild case, and probably even if you're asymptomatic, this virus is a clever, nasty bugger. It is doing three things that everyone should be aware of and be concerned about. And when I say everyone, I'm going to start with the medical community and the nutrition community. Number one is that it's damaging your blood vessels. It is basically scuffing up the endothelial lining, the inner lining of the blood vessels. What's an example of that? Think about an ice skating rink, right? Like before a hockey game, or have you ever gone for recreational skating? Sure. What happens after a game or after a session on the ice? It is really messed up. At the beginning of the session, if you were to throw a sweater on the ice, it would slide all the way across. That's what blood vessels are supposed to be like, smooth. Once you scuff up the ice after a hockey game, you throw that sweater, it's going to get stuck. It's going to clot. That's what happens in your blood system. So in an ice skating rink, what happens? You bust out the Zamboni. This is this big machine that rolls over the ice and it smooths out the ice skin, making it a perfect smooth surface. That's what nutrition, we think, can do is to help repair endothelium even if you have a mild case of COVID, all right? Mm -hmm. There's research, by the way, looking at other ways to repair the blood vessels, including using Viagra, low-dose Viagra, which is stimulates nitric oxide. Now, what if you don't want to have use of medication? Well, there are other foods that can stimulate nitric oxide. I got one right here. I have to be beet juice. Hey. Okay. Mm -hmm. Beets actually can create, stimulate in spinach, and bok choy can stimulate nitric oxide in your bloodstream, dilate your blood vessels and stimulate repair. So we know that blood vessels get scuffed up, they need to be fixed. Number two, inflammation happens no matter what. Eating a diet rich with anti-inflammatory foods, very, very important, even if you have mild COVID, all right? Vitamin C, catechins, those are all great ways to calm your inflammation. Remember that analogy, of the campfire that jumps out of the fire pit into the forest, you want to actually put out the stuff in the forest and keep it contained. All right. And the third thing that happens is there's a low level of autoimmunity that occurs. What I find so shocking about COVID is that this is a coronavirus that essentially tries to give people lupus, not real lupus, but it triggers an autoimmune response, which is why some people wind up getting long COVID and all these other complications. So things that can lower inflammation for lupus, diets that might be helpful for lupus might also be helpful for opposing this autoimmune effect as well. So at the microscopic level, vascular damage to your blood vessels, chronic low-grade inflammation, it's a sneaky kind of inflammation. And third is autoimmunity. These are the things that nutrition and nutritionists can actually play a big role in how you can actually recover from the acute disease and for long COVID outside of medicines that might be tried, clinical trials, experimental things that are going on right now. And you know, there's no clear cut answer to this. Nutrition, uh, remember, is self-care and healthcare starts with self-care and that's in your kitchen. 
I am so glad we've been having this conversation. I think it's going to be immeasurably helpful to so many individuals who are struggling with COVID, long COVID, or who may have yet to get COVID and are trying to strengthen their defense system. So they can do that with reducing the amount of inflammatory foods, getting anti-inflammatory foods that are rich in polyphenols and uh, omega-3 fatty acids, getting vitamin D, vitamin C, nitric oxide-rich food, teas, supporting the microbiome with healthy good bacteria from cultured foods and a lot of traditional foods, which tend to be anti-inflammatory anyway. So these are, these are just so valuable for us to understand. And we've already gotten a masterclass from you, Dr. Lee, right here, but I know you have a masterclass on your website. So briefly tell us a little bit about that and how people can find you if they want to become true masters and mistresses or whatever you want to call it of this domain. Well, well, first of all, it's part of my mission to try to get information out there. And so if, you, if anybody wants to learn more, and actually I provided a free download for immunity with how you can actually know what are some of the kind of like the knee jerk foods that I would actually tell you, you should actually know about right away. First, come to my website. It's at Dr. Dr. William Lee, L-I, drwilliamlee.com. And you can also find me on social. I, my handle is at Dr. Dr. William Lee, L-I. And, um, you know, sign up for my newsletter. And I do have a masterclass that you can actually sign up for as well. I hold it periodically, a couple of times a month. Please sign on. What's really fun for me about it is the global impact. I've had more than 50,000 people from 44 countries over the last year take this masterclass. And so I'm pretty interactive on it too. And so people can really kind of uh, see what where other people are coming from and what their concerns and questions are as well. Excellent. Well, what a wealth of information you are, and I'm sure will continue to be. Thank you for all that you've done to help people through this disease and through whatever else is, is yet to come. We look forward to having you join us for future episodes of the Good Clean Nutrition Podcast sponsored by Oregon, where we will interview more subject matter experts on a variety of health and nutrition focused topics. To stay up to date on the latest episodes of this podcast, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you so much, Dr. Lee, for joining us today. Thanks, Mary. And thanks to you all for tuning in. See you next time. The Good Clean Nutrition Podcast is sponsored by Oregon. Delicious meets nutritious in Orgain's all-in-one organic nutrition shakes. These smooth, creamy shakes are available in both plant-based and dairy options and are made with an organic fruit and vegetable blend and contained at least 20 vitamins and minerals and 16 grams of protein per serving. Visit Orgain.com to learn more.